0: Welcome
1: to Sustainable Success. Hope everyone's having a great week. We're here into the almost the end of the third week of July. Where has this month gone? But any event, all is good here at Sustainable Success. We hope all is going well in your business and personal success. If you have any questions of where you are, where you'd like to be, feel free to reach out to us, as always, at Voice America Influencers Channel at Sustainable Success, or reach out to me directly at Chris at ChristopherSalem.com. If you're new to Sustainable Success, you found us here at the Voice American Influences channel. We also encourage you to follow us on Apple Podcast as well and our Sustainable Success Facebook page, Sustainable Success 2017. There you'll find many of our great guests and subject matter experts sharing their words of wisdom and personal insights to help move your business and your personal success to the next level. As everyone knows that has been listening to the show, everything is authentic, transparent, and real case situations to help move you along where you are. So again, we encourage you to check us out also on Facebook and follow us there at Sustainable Success 2017. Today's show is being brought to you today by Alumni Direct. Alumni Direct is a new social media community platform dedicated to bringing together alumni from all different generational types, an opportunity to rekindle old relationships and perhaps meet new people for the first time. It takes all the noise out of social media, so there's no notifications. You get to come in at any time uh, free to what works best for you and be able to share content that allows you to connect at a higher level. This uh, site also contains an affinity-based program where you're eligible to receive services to uh, solopreneurs and entrepreneurs that you would normally not get anywhere else, Feel free to check them out at alumnidirect.com. That is alumnidirect.com. Well, we got a great show for you here today. We're going to be talking uh, with a title that, you know, is called Protect Your Assets from Investment Fraudsters. And we got James Brandolino, who's going to be on. And before I introduce James to the show. I wanted to be able to give you a a little background about him because he is the one that is going to help you. He helps people when it comes to all types of things with investment fraud. When uh, James was a trader at the Chicago Board of Trade, he committed security and commodities fraud. James was prosecuted by the federal government, pled guilty to one count of mail fraud, sending fictitious financial statements by the U.S. Mail, and served six and a half years in federal prison. While incarcerated, he studied forensic accounting and fraud examination textbooks, analyzed hundreds of federal and state fraud cases, and interviewed dozens of financial fraudsters to learn the tactics they use to defraud investors. Today, James is the foremost investment fraud prevention expert who educates investors and financial professionals on identifying the dozens of red flags leading to financial misconduct. And without further ado, we welcome James Brandolino to the show. James, how are you doing today?
2: I'm well. Thanks, Chris.
1: Great. Well, we love we're so happy to have you on the show here. And you know, this is such, you know, an area that perhaps like you know, people have, you know, maybe experienced certain things in their life, you know, where when it comes to fraud. And what I what I love about you is, you know, your transparency. I had an opportunity to meet you you know, prior to this show and just really how genuine and authentic you are and how your story really, you know, you know, while it's a story that, you know, you look back and you say, God, you know, why did this happen? But yet you turned it into something that you learned and and, and not only grew from it personally, but what you're doing now to get back and help others, especially in the financial industry to protect against fraudsters. And you're, you are the go-to guy for that. We'd love to, you know, maybe if you could share with us a little bit about your backstory and, you know, what led up to, you know, where you were and, you know, where you are today. And then uh, from there, we could go into some of the things that you're working on, you know, helping, you know, organizations and people to notice those red flags.
2: Sure. Well, you know, investment fraud, unfortunately, is not a very sexy subject to talk about. And you know, if you look at the at the regulators, they're they're giving us the same regurgitated advice. You know, if it looks too good to be true, it must be, and you know, read all the documents before investing, which doesn't you know help the average investor much. And then you on the other side, you've got you know American Greed on CNBC, which is a highly successful entertaining show, but unfortunately, it's ninety nine percent entertainment and one percent education, right? So I think that's kind of where my niche is. You know, taking my background, and my experience, and being completely open and honest about it, and the research I've done. And, you know, really try to put a dent in the amount of money that's going into Froster's hands, right? So I would say that the, the beginning uh, interest that I had in terms of trading goes back to when I was a sophomore in high school and wanting to trade on one of Chicago's three financial exchanges, the Chicago Board of Trade, the Chicago Merc, or the Options Exchange. And really, what inspired me to pursue a trading career was in 1983 with the release of the movie Trading Places. Right in that climatic trading scene, when Eddie Murphy and Dan Aykroyd, you know. A- attempt while well, they actually did corner the, the, the frozen concentrated orange juice market. And that's really kind of what, what got me on the path to to trading futures, really. So I attended the University of Illinois at Chicago, and I full-time while I was working on the floor as a runner. And then when I graduated with a degree in finance, I went to Charles Schwab, was there for about three years, then went back to the floor as a trading assistant in the in the bond pit, and then worked for a very large uh, derivatives firm trading firm called MF Global and was an ops manager there and also a trading desk manager. So about 1999, uh, I decided to leave MF Global and and open up a small, you know, little retail futures brokerage firm so I could trade uh, a proprietary bond system that I had created and was trading with uh, at MF Global. And with the expectation that after you know three or four more years of positive results, that I would you know become a fund manager, you know trade on the floor and manage money. So you know fast forward to 2003, and I I was ready. I had approved myself as a as a as a futures trader, and as a money manager. So I applied to the board of trade for membership, and I formed a proprietary futures fund. So what's interesting about my story is that. My, the catalyst for my fraud occurred before I even started legally trading client money when I was setting up my desk space on the trading floor uh, you know I expected that I would be somewhere in in the bond trading quadrant and I wasn't because it was so busy there I got moved to where the Dow Jones futures were trading and sure I had watched equ- indices stock indices trade before but had never you know, paid much attention and I was just kind of mesmerized, you know, during the four or five days that it took for the board of trade IT people to come and hook me up, hook all my stuff up on the floor, that wow, you know, yes, my clients are are satisfied with my six percent return. But boy, if if I could just make a few modifications to my algorithms and you know trade this wild crazy you know, SP and Dow Jones futures market, I could add four or 500 basis points. I could, you know, be earning, you know, 10, 11%, 12% a year. I, you know, I could really be a hero. And it's really with that. I never placed one trade with the system that I had um, created and exclusively tested for and traded for years. I went right into to making some modifications and trading uh, Dow Jones futures, right? And within a week, week and a half, I was down about two point nine percent. Let's say three percent, right? And I was—I mean, I was heart sick, right? What am I going to do, right? It's my first month. How am I possibly going to um, go to my clients, my you know, my family, my friends, my existing clients, uh, and say what happened? I was just fearful that they would all pull out, and I wasn't going to be able to, you know, keep on with the fund. And what was I going to do in the future, right? So I had about a week and a half before my accounting firm that I hired was going to get the statements from my clearing firm so they could mail out the you know the monthly performance to, to my investors. So I'm sitting in an office with a colleague. He's on the phone. I pick up a copy of investor Institutional Investor Magazine. And what do I see? I see an ad for hedge fund accounting software. And the light bulb went off instantly. Boy, all I've got to do is buy the software, input everything. Instead of showing a 2.9% loss, I'll show a 1.8% gain right and 3% i can make that back i mean i've been trading for a long long time i can make 3% back you know in a month you know a couple of weeks a month two months whatever it may be well you know we don't have to you know extrapolate too too much to what happened minus 3% minus 5% minus 10% minus 20% and it never came back so that was really stage 1 of our phase 1 of my crime which was falsifying documents Phase 2 was after about a year and a half I'd kind of run out of client money, right? And it was it was difficult to, to trade. So, what do I do instead of going to my clients and saying what happened my investors? I took a, an equity line of credit on my on my on my condo. Um, I downsized my automobile. Uh, I took life insurance money out, you know, my 401k and put all that money in there. And after about another 14 15 months so now we're almost at the 3 year point um, i was pretty much done with that as well and up th- up to this point i had not stolen any money i was falsifying documents and i yes. was sub- and i was subsidizing what my losses with my money which are both uh, regulatory violations but they were civil they weren't criminal and then yes. comes to the point where now i i've got a couple thousand dollars in my in my account right and I'm, man, what am i going to do now and i've i've got a i've got to come yeah. clean and, and, and talk to my investors and just, you know, by the grace of God or the university, uh, universe or whatever, um, a client called me and said, hey, I've got a, a neighbor of mine who wants to come and see you. And, you know, he's thinking about investing. And I, you know, I'm thinking, okay, my buying was minimum was 50000 That's what pretty much everybody started with. And I'm like, okay, yeah, that'll help. But that, that'll just kind of push things uh, maybe, you know, six months more out in the future. And that's about it. Well, yeah. he comes, he writes me a check for $500,000. And I'm thinking, you know, this is great because this will really allow me to, you know, to bring some outside talent in some, maybe a quant or a a, a database person and really kind of help me with my testing. And I'm going to fix this thing. I'm going to make it work. I'll make the money back. No problem. However, because I was so low on personal funds, I had a, that's when I began embezzling money about the three-year mark to, you know, pay for personal expenses and for business expenses. And that point that lasted, that lasted five more years.
1: Well, so you had another five years that that you were able because it looked like you were at that point, and then somebody comes in with that amount of money that I bought right. time.
2: Well, and and there was and there was more, many more people after that five hundred thousand, right? But that that's that was really when when my the, the lexicon of of my fraud changed from from civil to criminal, right? And I yeah. it was wrong. I knew it was wrong, but you know there was never really a doubt in my mind, other than for an hour here, an hour there, over the eight years. That I was that I I couldn't make the money back. I just had a I just had to figure it out, and yeah. really kind of how it ended was you know one day one morning I'm standing on my balcony watching the sunrise over the Chicago skyline and I'm like I'm not going to make this back. It's not going to happen. I'm down about three point eight million and you know in the big it's a lot of money in the big in the big scheme of things it's not a lot of money you know in terms yeah. of hedge fund fraud that we've seen but I mean it's a lot of money sure and uh, if, you know forget it. So I'm going to. Uh, I'm going to skip a few parts out that I'm going to, you know, put in the book, but let's just say after a period of severe mental anguish uh, in January, January 6th of 2011, I walked into the U uh, S attorney's office in Chicago with the FBI president and said, this is who I am. This is what I did here. Are my, here's my client lists. Um, I'll wait for an indictment. And um, very soon I was indicted.
1: And, and, and I tell you, James, I mean, what was that feeling? I mean, the fact is, like you said, you know, you, this thing happened, but that was not your intention. Your intention was not to go and defraud people. It was something that just sort of happened. And the intention was to thinking, I'm going to make this money back and I'll make this right. And everything will be back on track. But it, it just kept further digging, you know, it's way down. And in, and then you got to what, again, when you felt that, when you walked in, what was that feeling? I must've been like, a, I've, I've been there before in different situations and I know that feeling. Like it feels like you know you hit rock bottom. Was that a rock bottom t- time for you? Or
2: um, yeah, I'm going to answer your first question, which is a very good question. I mean, what makes investment fraud different than other types of financial crime is that most investment fraudsters don't set out to defraud people, right? Yeah, absolutely. The, the 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 motivation is not greed; it's fear. It's that we're put on this uh, pedestal that that we're going to be successful. That we that we have all this knowledge we've got this talent. And when we fail at it, we don't want to face that social embarrassment and, you know, going to our clients, going to investors, going to our social circle, right? You had to close your fund. You, did, you, you lost money. You're never going to make money and whatever, however we work that in, in our minds. And that's really the where most investment fraud starts. And like I said, the first three years of my eight years, I didn't steal a penny. It was, I, was, I was falsifying documents. And this is a lot, of, a lot of other investment fraud. You know, we're trying to buy time. We're trying to buy time to make it work. You know, you know, when will the market turn around? When will interest rates come down? When will the technology that that will change um, a particular product or industry? When will that work? Whatever, whatever happens, um, I can fix it. I can change it. I can wait it out. And that's really where most investment fraud starts. And eventually, when when we start losing enough money, where we've got to go in and you know, embezzle you know, to keep either keep up a lifestyle or to, you know, live a normal life or whatever it may be. That's, that's really where the, the the criminal element comes in.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely.
2: And then the the second question, just real quick, I mean, it, it it was really, really tough. Although, you know, I knew that as soon as I walked in there, I knew that it was a, it was a tough, tough, tough road, but literally when I was literally five minutes after I was sitting in the U S attorney's office with the FBI and we're talking and stuff and I, I can't say anything bad about them they, they were really really fair and and good with me i uh, you know i just felt that huge release off my shoulders i'm done I can, yeah. I can i can move on i have no idea where i'm going i have no idea what's going to happen i have no idea how much time i'm going to spend uh incarcerated but whatever i do when i get out i'm going to i'm going to do something that that's going to help people
1: wow well, wow. and, and like in a way, like you said, it, it almost felt like it like a sense of relief because you would like you feel like you're carrying this anchor on your back for all this time. And you know, I've been there in different situations, Yeah, you, know, you know, not in the case where like it was in the finite, but in ways where I felt like you know, like I wasn't telling a customer everything that they had to know, and I felt like I was uh, you know, not being right with them. And I've done I've been down that same path before. And, you know, organizations saying, hey, don't say certain things. And I felt like, well, hey, if I don't do this, I'm not really being transparent. And that really ate at my soul. And I can understand where, where that is. I know that you're going to share here coming up some of the things that what, you know, what you went through during this process while, while you were, do, you know, that you were dealing with this situation. And then once that you you did your time and you came out, some of the things that that you were able to turn this around for the good. So uh, well, we got to go to break, but we come back. We're here with again with James Brandolino. He's the investment fraud guy, and again we're talking about protecting protect your assets from investment investment fraudsters. We got more to come with James here when we come back after the break.
0: What is balance? Again, that's 1-866-472-5795, or send an email to Chris at ChristopherSalem.com. Now, back to Sustainable Success.
1: Welcome back to Sustainable Success. We're talking about protect your assets with investment fraudsters. We're here with the investment fraud guy, James Brandolino. If you're just joining us again, you can listen to this show in its entirety here Later today here at the Voice American Influencers Channel, and we highly encourage you to do that because this is a powerful story uh, that James had shared in the first segment uh, about what we are talking about, how to protect your assets from investment fraudsters. So, James, you know, here here you were someone who you know that you know you came from a great family, grown up in the Chicago area, college educated, really you know understood the financial markets, and now after you know this. Period of time where where you know you, the intentions were not to, to fraud it to fraud anybody, but it sort of just happened. Now you're in this new element that you never imagined. Talk about that. What you you know what what was that like, and what 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 did you do with that time that you got to know yourself and the things that you're known today in helping so many people as the investment fraud guy.
2: Well, probably the first point I would make is that. You know, I can't tell you how difficult it is, you know, living the life of a fraudster. It's nothing like you would see on American Greed on CNBC, right? It's, you know, it's really, really difficult. There there never was a day that I didn't think that I was not going to get caught. I had, um, of my 60 investors, I had a handful that were very, very, very hands-on. And a few of them would call me literally Two or three times a week, just to chat. How's the market? The market went up a lot. How did we do? The market went down a lot. How did we do? The market's not moving at all. You like volatility? How did we do? I mean, that kind of stuff, right? And every time they would call, hey, well, you know, what are you doing this weekend? Why don't you come down and you know, and you know, I got some questions for you. I like, that's it. We're done, you know. Or hey, you know, so and so, and I want to come up and you know, and you know, to your office or come to the floor and you know, ask you a couple of questions. Up. Oh, that's we're done. That's it. So you know, just having that. Having that on your shoulders all the time, it, it was just was just awful. It was just it was just terrible. Uh, I think a lot of people, you know, don't realize that. Uh, what, what's more interesting, and I'm asked this probably more so than any other question, you know, what's it like to feel that you were so smart that you fooled so many people? You know, I didn't fool anybody, and 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 this is the reason why. The problem that. Occurred is that no one did their due diligence, and the people that were hired—the attorneys and CPAs whose offices dot the down, downtown skyline in Chicago—right, um, didn't do what they were supposed to do, and I got away with everything. And you know, any anybody who would have spent any time verifying anything I said, you know, would have would have figured out my fraud, right? So what I think maybe what made it a little bit easier for my fraud is that I was kind of like the anti Madoff in terms of secrecy. I was a wide open book. I mean, I actually traded. I actually had a trading system. Right, I had an office at the board of trade, and I was on the trading floor. Anybody that wanted to come and watch me trade, I would actually trade. And there, there was trades going on. If people wanted to, you know, see, you know, you know, trading logs, you know, I had a, I had, you know, you know, this many. Uh, monthly statements in my, in my office. So, you know, I actually did trade out. I actually was who I said I was, but not really. Right. So, you know, just, you know, the the people that were supposed to really find my fraud, and I'm not going to, I'm not going to put that on my, on my, on my clients, because although most of them were accredited and highly successful business owners, their CPAs and attorneys and trust officials just never, just never did their job. Right. And and it happens not just with my case, but every single day. And it, it's just it's just the same. It's the same old story.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean that must be like I said. Here, here are these are people that that are you know that you get hired, and uh, and that you think that you're going to have your back, but they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing.
2: So uh, a quick example, you know, probably the beginning of the second year of my fraud. A client calls me up and says, "Hey, do you have financial audited financial statements?" And I'm thinking, "No, but I can get some, right?" I was like, "Yeah, I'll I'll call my my CPA firm in New York and 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 get them for you." So what do I do? I go to Google, you know, hedge fund sample hedge fund audit, right? You get a yep. couple of PDFs, and you know, did it all myself. And there was probably five or six mistakes. And I I use these documents in some of my presentations to show how, if any CPA or or educated business person that has any inkling about how to read a financial statement would have would have noticed the errors, right? And you know no the problem was nobody verified anything that I said, anything that I did. I and mean, I put a fictitious a fictitious account auditing firm on there. nobody ever verified it. nobody verified anything.
1: Yeah, wow.
2: And that and that wow. was, that that's that's the big problem. And, and like think, you said, these
1: were reputable reputable CPAs and and lawyers. I would take it, you know, in the, taking the fact that you had the clientele that you mentioned. These were pretty, you know, some savvy guys you were working with. Well,
2: and, you know, uh, there were a few two man shops, but the, yeah. the majority, the the, the the attorneys in the space, they they were they were in firms that would be in, you know, in skyscrapers in Chicago. Yeah. So. So what's that tell you? Either A, they didn't do the work that they were being paid to, or B, they just didn't know what to look for. And I really yeah. think it's probably the latter, right, that they just didn't know what to look for. And that's really kind of been my motivation uh, in terms of, you know, when I when I was incarcerated to early on really want to study fraud, you know, take my case and break my case down. And as I began to, um, I have a sister who's a librarian, and she was able to go on to LexisNexis and print literally hundreds of state and federal cases for me. And I was able to, you know, get a few textbooks for forensic accounting and kind of start putting things together, as well as, you know, talk to, interview a lot of other financial fraudsters that I was incarcerated with. And what's really interesting, Chris, is that, you know, the red flags really don't change. And the red flags even are the same ones that we saw 50 years ago. Yes, the computer and the Internet have changed things a little bit, but it's the same stuff. They're just using a computer instead of doing it face to face. And it, it just amazes me that, you know, that the regulatory agencies haven't, haven't taken, you know, the step to really, you know, put some better information out there. And that's really, you know, kind of my goal to be the poster child for investment fraud and say, look, this is what I did. This is how I did it. This is how to protect yourself. So, you know, when I was away, I, you know, I spent a lot of time and in, in, in putting together what I, what I called, what I call now a red flag report, right? Which is basically categorizing a little bit differently, but a little more intuitively all the areas where the red flags hide and then, you know, break them down. And it's actually, it's actually going to be in a book that I'm actually working on as we speak. Hopefully we'll be done by the end of the end of the summer. That will really be the, the, the do-it-yourself guide to preventing, you know, preventing fraudsters from getting your assets.
1: Yeah, absolutely. What would be some of the things like, like when, if we could talk about during this process, I want to get into like the gist of what you, what you, what you learned, but When you were, when you had that time, when you were doing your time, what was that? What What do you feel like changed? Like what was something that you felt that, that you learned and were able to apply that you didn't, that you didn't do before that you knew when you got out, like, Hey, this is what I'm going to do. And the difference I'm going to make, I would, we'd love to hear that from you.
2: You know, probably within the first six months, I really decided that I was gonna go out and wanna speak about this, right? And someone who was much brighter than I was, actually he was an ex uh, big eight accounting executive. Surprisingly, he said, when you go out there, you gotta be honest. You gotta open everything, open every door, open every window, never shy away from a question and let people know what it's really like from your side. Right. Mm. Because nobody, very few people understand what it's like on the side of the fraudster. I mean, even now when I work with, with CPAs or, you know, attorneys and I see things that they don't see. And it's not that I'm smarter. It's just that that's my niche. Right. Yeah. Uh, even even forensic accountants. You know, I, I I just finished 18 hours of grad school in, in forensic accounting uh, and fraud examination. And even some of my professors are like, well, I never thought of that before. It's like, yeah, you know, so. It's just to really be open and honest and really kind of put it all out there with uh, on a subject that's not you know really talked about all that much,
1: yeah. Wow, and like you said, I mean, because right now you bring so much value in terms of you know helping CPAs and and you know even lawyers. I mean, because again, you know, if this is somebody like hey, you you were in that, and even though, like I said, you you didn't have ill intentions, that was not the case, but but you understood. What to look for, you know, because again, you knew because these are some things that, hey, I gotten away with this up to this point. And, you know, my intentions were always to pay everything back. But it just seemed like every time, you know, month went by, another month went by, a year went by. It was not moving in that direction.
2: Well, you know the old saying: the road to hell is paved with good intentions, right?
1: Exactly, exactly, right. Exactly. Yeah,
2: I mean, you know, yeah. And I, I, spent, you know, probably a good couple hundred thousand dollars of, of investor money, mind you, but you know, trying hiring people to try to try to fix, you know, what what was broken, right? Yeah. And it was a combination of of some of the math in my models, but also too probably a bigger part was the psychology to trade that kind of volatility, which I was not used to. I mean, I hired you know a trading psychologist and you know spent a lot of money there and you know just could not just could not make it work
1: yeah yeah exactly so i mean again i mean everything's a learning experience i mean whether if it's if it's you know in the case where sometimes we go through something like this you know i had you know learning experiences i mean i mean where you know i've lost business or i lost i lost when i worked for companies and i lost my job as a result of and i had to learn and apply you like when you got when you when you were were released and you came back out like what was that like that what was that thing what was driving you like I guess I want to get to that like what was really driving you now to turn something this experience for these years that you did let, let's say it was over a 15 year period including when the time you were doing it time that you served and how you came out a different per a different man me even though you're the same person in many ways but yet in a way that you're doing this really to help people move forward. I'd love to hear, we'd love to hear that because I think it would really touch a lot of people.
2: So I I think I'm going to answer it this way. So not to sound like a cliche, but I really followed my heart and really probably within a few weeks after I was released and, and, and went home, I stayed with my parents and somehow start watching Gary Vaynerchuk videos. Right. And, you know, you know, take the, you know, the, 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 the long route and, you know, follow, you know, follow your heart and do what's going to work for you and, you know, do, you know, make a difference and all all that type of stuff. And that really helped. But also too, you know, I knew that even though I made some, I made a bad decision and a, a lot more bad decisions than I hurt people, even though the majority of them, you know, it didn't affect their lifestyle you know, regardless what I I did was, was really, really wrong and really bad and hurt people. And, but I knew that I wasn't really, I wasn't a bad person. Right. And I, and I just, I I wanted to make a difference and said, you know, I can, I can go out there and I can speak and people can throw darts at me all they want and they can throw tomatoes. Um, The hammers hurt a little bit more, but I'm going to go out there and I'm going to, you know, raise awareness and, you know, try to make a difference and really help people, understand what due diligence is all about. And if there are too many red flags there, they got to walk away.
1: Yeah. And be done with exactly. It, right? exactly. And, and so when you're looking at this, I mean, when you get an investor, you know, especially when they're, when they're investing, you know, a certain amount of money, like 50K in this case was the minimum. And then, you know, if they were investing more, hundred thousand, you know, now you're getting into accredited money and so on. So obviously there's going to be other people involved. You know, it could be a CPA, a lawyer, a combination. Like now, like again, like you, you're able to really add tremendous amount of value to make sure people's, you know, people are are prepared in this way, even on both sides, the investors and the people that are are supposedly there to help protect their clients' money and all the things in between, in that case being the CPAs and lawyers. If you right, can shed some insight on that would be it'd be great. For well, you know,
2: know I, I think you know cryptocurrency is probably the hottest right now in terms of Ponzi schemes, but I can yeah. tell you what is a close second, and probably may even take crypto in in the next year or so, and that's this multi level private equity raising. You know, there are mm-hmm. some influencers who I will not mention their names who are really yes. big in the real estate arena, and they motivate um, the mom and pop. You know. Uh, couples who've had, you know, a little success with the five or six flips or the five or six multifamily units that they've purchased and basically now go out and raise money and, you know, raise investor money. And there's a, a lot of there's a lot of mistakes that are being made. And it's not that they're going to commit fraud initially, but what they're missing and what they're not doing is going to set the table. It's going to form that architecture that if something goes wrong later on and whatever it may be, whether it be interest rates or they can't make their payments or their uh, vacancy rates and whatever their income drops, whatever happens, that architecture that, that they've set up is going to allow them to commit fraud without being caught. Yeah or make it very difficult to be caught. And that's what a lot of investors don't understand, right?
1: Yeah. 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 I mean, you think about crypto, like, you know, just, I mean, and then we could talk about the real estate too, With the few minutes we have left here in the, in the second segment, the, you know, crypto, I mean, God, it was so hot, right? You know, you had the Bitcoin and Ethereum and, you know, and, all these other ones, Litecoin, and now you got all these new ones, Do- Doji Coin. What I don't know if I can pronounced half of these things right. 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 But like you said, it's just like you, you know, like Warren Buffett lo- looks at this and says, "I, you know, what is this?" there's like nothing that you could really tie it could tie itself to. It's just kind of like you said, like a Ponzi scheme in some well, way. It
2: it doesn't it, it it doesn't produce anything, right? There's no there's no income stream from it. And and really, so you know, in terms of Ponzi scheme, I mean, you know, whether it's crypto or or foreign exchange currency trading or stocks or, you know, fine wine or you know, antique automobiles or baseball cards, whatever, whatever a, a hedge fund or private equity fund invests in, and it turns into a Ponzi scheme. The product itself doesn't matter. You know, the the, the back end or the back office. Is pretty much all the same on how these work. So yeah, you have to understand the products a little bit, so you can you know look at you know counterparty transactions and you can see how they're valued, et cetera, et cetera. But you know a Ponzi scheme is a Ponzi scheme. It doesn't matter what yeah. the product is that you know that the people are are you know are, you know put on on the brochure cover, right? So, and and that's I think that that multi-family is is going to overtake uh, the crypto market. But the crypto multi-frame. right now is is, yeah. is, is hot. Yeah, is it is really I mean, we're seeing, you know, you know, five hundred million, a billion, a couple of billion. I don't think that we've we've even touched the surface of that crypto market yet. They're just yeah. rampant with fraud. And it's not so much that that the value of the those currencies have plummeted. It's just because they've plummeted and, you know, and the, the the value of the income stream to the these exchanges or platforms has gone down, it's forced them to make decisions that they probably didn't want to make, right? Yeah which is, you know, the situation that I was in or that a lot of investment fraudsters are in. That's to you know, to, you know, borrow from one account for another account so they can, you know, you know, meet investor withdrawals so they could, you know, maintain certain, you know, equity to debt levels, et cetera, et cetera.
1: Yeah. Wow. Well, we have more to come. I want to be, I I have a few questions I want to ask you in the uh, third segment here. We are, uh, we are talking about, Uh, protect your assets from investment frosters with with the investment fraud guy, James Brandolino. And you're going to learn a little bit here in the next segment, more about what James is doing and how you can get in contact with him. Uh, We got to go to break, but when we come right back, we got more to come.
0: Again, that's 1866 472 5795. Or send an email to Chris at christophersalem.com. Now, back to Sustainable Success.
1: Welcome back to Sustainable Success. We're talking about protect your assets from the for investment fraudsters. We're here with the investment fraud guy, James Brandolino. And our show today is being brought to you today by Alumni Direct, again, a new social media platform dedicated to bringing alumni together across all different generational types. It offers a wide array of affinity-based programs as a member. So feel free to check them out at alumnidirect.com. That's alumnidirect.com. Well, James, you have, you have just really, you know, you're, I was just saying while we were at break, you know, during the commercial just your transparency and authenticity and all the great things you've been doing, uh, you know, from this experience, talk about, maybe provide some actual examples, some things that you've been involved in and, and helping to, you know, really raise, you know, really raise awareness for some of these potential fraud fraudulent situations, I think would be quite uh, insightful for the listeners.
2: Okay. So I usually don't like giving tips because, you know, you know, giving three or five tips or 10 tips is not gonna really help someone stop fraud, but I can kind of go over the, you know, the, the big picture to give yeah. people an idea of what what I look for. So, you know, in terms of fraud prevention, really there's two primary objectives, right? To determine if the principals and key employees, if they are who they say they are. And number two, by reviewing their their books and legal documents and marketing, et cetera, and back office, you know, are they doing what they say that they're doing, right? So, you know, where to start, and that really depends whether it's myself as as a professional fraud investigator or whether it's an investor, is is the investigation going to be overt or covert? So, you know, I get, you know, after I speak at an event or, you know, I get a phone call, it'll be one of of two things. Either A, someone calls up and says, hey, James, um, my neighbor who's, uh, you know, a big business guy uh, showed me this investment that he invested and he's happy with it, and I've got the documents, would you look at it? Sure. Right. Um, on the other side of that, which is probably more often, hey, you know, my James, my brother-in-law, uh, let me uh, gave me some documents to look at. He he made this investment a couple of years ago. I invested last year. Now everything's okay. I'm not worried. But you know, the statements are coming a little later. And when I call the office to have a question, it takes them you know three four days to get back to me, and it never used to. Now, I, you know, I'm making a lot of money. But would you look at it for me? Oh, and by the way, don't tell that. Don't tell the manager that you know, that I, that I hired you to do this. So, you know, whether we can be over to covert really kind of depends. I mean, if, if we're going in before someone invests, it makes it a lot easier that if we have the, you know, if the manager lets us come in and, and, and talk to him, talk to his staff, look at his back office, you know, talk to his, his, his auditor, talk to his legal firm, legal team, if we have to, just to kind of see what policies and procedures are in place. When we, when we don't have that, it it, it puts us behind the eight ball, a little bit, but you'd be surprised how much we can do. So, so I would say number one, hands down, and this, this will not be relevant to all types of private investments, but you have to have audited financial statements. Absolute must. Now there, there, there are some now that that don't that are not required, but most bigger hedge funds, most bigger. Uh, private equity will have them. I mean, we can see what happened with Theranos in California, right? Seven hundred fifty million dollars and never an audited statement. And I don't know where all the CPAs and attorneys were and all the venture capital guys who do this for a living. Who, after ten million dollars, which is the hush number, when You know, they didn't. They didn't require that they get them. But okay, it is what it is, right? Um, but you you want to have that. You want to make sure that you want to verify that the numbers were were done by uh, a licensed authentic you know, CPA firm, audit firm, and that they actually did it for that particular investment firm. They, they actually did it, right? Um, number two, and this is probably the first question I ask when somebody calls me uh, regarding this. I, I was like, how, how are you approached? Were, were you in a, in a chat room? Was it your neighbor that told you about it? Were you at a party? How did this happen? And the reason why I ask is to see, you know, a, a lot of the ways that that funds raise money is, is by a, what's called a, a a private offering or a regulation D offering, right? Where the SEC allows uh, these investment firms, a lot of leeway in terms of how they raise money, as long as they follow a specific, a specific process. And usually a lot of that is it's a lot more stringent when there are non-accredited, uh, investors right so i was are you a accredited investor to explain you know what that means so that that would be a red flag if if they were not asked over the phone initially or very soon afterward if they were accredited right um, similar to that depending upon if they're trading any type of security you know is is the firm registered with the right regulatory agency and are the principals and key employees Licensed as they should, either you know, either with FINRA if you're uh, if you're a uh, trading general securities, if you're trading futures and forex with the NFA, with the SEC if you're a registered investment advisor. uh, That that's pretty pretty important. Um, Looking at the at the disclosure documents, the private placement memorandum. You know, if it's if it's something that's and in a lot of cases, you know, these are not required if there are no non accredited investors. Um, but it's pretty much standard practice that there is a you know a 10 to 100 page document that basically says you know that quasi business legal document that says this is who we are, this is what we do, this is our competitive advantage, right? That's going to take about you know 30 percent, 40 percent of the document, and the other half is going to be you know 20 pages, 30 pages of risk disclosure, and that protects both the investment firm that as long as they stay in their lane and they do what they say they're going to do, if they lose money that you know they they're they're not going to get sued or they're going to be you know not liable right uh, i mean it's not illegal to lose money as long as you lose it the right way and that yeah. and and that's really i think you know what what a lot of investment fraudsters you know don't realize we lose money and we do it legally however because out of fear you know I, for me i was i was just deathly afraid to confront my investors, family, friends, et cetera, et cetera, and you know, look what you know. Look at the position I put myself in. You know, it, it, it was awful, um, but because of that, um, you know, looking uh, if, if it's somebody who has invested already, looking looking at statements. Um, you know, I, I just reviewed a. Uh, a case about three four months ago that the gentleman had invested in a fund that was trading futures. Well, with futures contracts, besides commission, there are what are called exchange fees, and those are maybe a dollar fifty per contract, right? So, depending upon how much you're trading, uh, that will determine how with the fees are going to be. Well, over a one month period, there was three three days where they traded. There was three different amounts of. Um, of contracts they traded. I think one was seven contracts, 11 contracts and 20 contracts, but the exchange fees were the same on all three days, which is an impossibility, right? So of course, you know, the the big, big, big 911 red flag goes up and says, yeah, we got to really look at this. Um, You know, something that's probably a little bit more difficult to detect unless you're able to, you know, look into the back office is verifying the other the counterparties or what we would call the other side of the trade. So for me I'm going to take those statements uh, if they're if they're actually trading something on an exchange futures or or equities or options I can go to the brokerage firm the other side and see okay who who was on the other side of this trade did this trade really happen. But if it's real estate there's a lot of ways that you can go and you can really look at at, at records and see who was the other person on, on the other side of that.
1: Got it. Got it. Wow. So that, that was some great insight and, so, and oftentimes uh, as people and, you know, you're you got to you know, I know you have a book coming out shortly and I would love to hear maybe if you if it's not too, I know the book's not out yet. But if there's anything you would like to share, like you get a little sneak peek of something, if you like to share anything, what you know what you just talked about and then how that might help people as well.
2: So this book has been in the works for probably about three years. And I really thought that I would have had it done by now, but just because of the speaking engagements and, you know, doing a lot of, you know, a lot of consulting with clients and working with law enforcement on certain cases, I just haven't been motivated to sit down and actually finish it. And, uh, Unfortunately, I just sprained my ankle and will not be running the Chicago Marathon in October. But I guess that's a blessing because I really now I have no choice but to sit down and really finish that book by by the end of summer. Um, I haven't really come up with the name, you know, protect your assets—the complete guide, maybe to protecting your assets from fraudsters. Um, You know, basically, it's going to be a do-it-yourself guide on kind of step by step, you know, basically breaking the process down by you know looking at the investment itself, looking at at the principles. And key employees um looking at the firm and their processes and, lo- and looking at uh third-party uh, consultants uh or you know or service providers banks brokerage firms cpas and you know making sure that they're all legitimate and they're all they're all doing what they're supposed to be doing so and then I it, that would be the second half where I go back and, and, and look at all the red flags and there's, there's about 100 red flags that I look at Wow. Not, not not everybody's going to be able to do all those, but you can see, you know, what the process is. And that's coming right from the consulting work that I do now as well.
1: Got it. Well, we want to make sure to let you know when when the book is finally completed and ready to, you know, you know, when you set a date to when the, the launch is going to be on Amazon or Barnes and Noble or both, you know, we'll make sure here at at uh, Voice American Influencers Channel Sustainable Sex, we'll make sure to make sure we get that out there and and encourage people to get their hands on this. It, any whether if you're a CPA in the finance industry, if you're a lawyer, law enforcement, an investor, you know, definitely gotta gotta read your book. No doubt about it. No doubt. I mean, about
2: it. you know, it's not rocket science, Chris. It's just you know a certain you know set of tools that you need and to look at. And I think just most investors and financial professionals just don't know where to start. They don't know yeah. the right questions to ask and. And whatever answers they get from a potential fraudster, they don't know necessarily how to what that what it means and how to verify it if it's correct. And that's yeah. really what we're going to go through in the book.
1: Wow. That's powerful. James, anything else that you would like to share as we, you know, as we get near the end of the show that you would like to share about, you know, being the investment fraud guy. And I love that the slogan, by the way, and I think it just really signifies. Everything like you know, where you've been, where you are now, and the things that you're going to be making a difference going forward. Any other insights that you would like to share uh, with the audience?
2: You know, I would say no one is immune to investment fraud, right? If Warren Buffett could get scammed out of 300 and some million dollars. You know, with that solar Ponzi scheme, and you know they have a very vast network of due diligence persons that are working on that stuff, and and they they couldn't figure it out. Now, it's, of course, it's such a small percentage of what he's managing, but if they could get duped, really anybody can get duped, and you really have to be vigilant. You have to either a want to take the bull by the horns and do it yourself. Or you want to hire somebody who, who's really experienced in investigating that stuff. You know, I, I, there's an anecdote that I use in a lot of my talks and that's, you know, my, my fraud lasted for eight years, right? Some of my clients did it themselves and some, you know, passed that due diligence on to their, you know, their attorneys or CPAs, et cetera. And, you know, they, they did all the work. And what was, you know, what was the, the net result? My, my crime lasted for eight years. And mm-hmm. the point, the point being is that just because you're letting your CPA or letting your attorney or a quote unquote friend or professional or smart business person look at the stuff doesn't mean that they know what to look for. Right. Yeah. So you just make sure that, that you, that you get the right information and you talk to someone who's knowledgeable, whether it be myself or, or, you know, someone else who's, you know, in that industry. Absolutely.
1: Wow. No, absolutely. I think that's powerful what, what you shared and, and. And again, it's all the awareness in that, that we can't take things for granted. We have to be able to just taking that extra, you know, little bit of time to gather more information can save us a lot of grief on the back end. There's no, no doubt about it. So, so James, as we're in the final few minutes of, of today's show, I'd love to make sure that people, you know, they know about, you know, there's a book coming soon at some point, you know, should, you know, maybe perhaps by the end of the year, it's going to be out maybe even sooner, you know, any place that you're gonna be speaking anytime soon or what are some ways that people you know, can get to know you and you a lot better and get to know you and reach out to you?
2: So probably number one would be go to my website, theinvestmentfraudguy.com, my story's on there. Uh, what I speak about is on there. Um, I have a a handful of attorneys and CPA firms that I work with on a pretty much a daily basis that I work with in terms of cases. So a lot of my time is spent um, doing consulting work and writing, you know, looking for red flags and writing red flag reports. I would definitely like to spend more time speaking, although I was doing quite a bit of that before. And then COVID came and, you know, we know what happened there. But now things are starting to pick up again. But I really feel, you know, I, I had not scheduled a lot of talks for yeah. presentations for for the summer, really with my intention of getting the book done. Because I really I really want that done. I, I think that it it it's really gonna be uh good for a lot of people. But basically I talk about, you know, investment fraud awareness, you know, it's preventable, you know, and how do we prevent it? You know, how do you do the due diligence? I tell my story, I I, you know, I talk about ethics. Um, you know, I try to give an inside view, you know, you know, what fraud looks like from the eyes of a of a former fraudster. You know, yeah. we look at things a lot different than than the general public would.
1: Yeah. Well, we can, we highly encourage uh, everybody listening and those listening uh, later to get in touch with James, again, the investment fraud guy, you know, get, follow him on LinkedIn, uh, reach out to him uh, uh, personally on his, on his email, Uh, go to the website. We'll make sure everything is posted there. Uh, We got about a minute left, uh, James, before we close out the show in the next 20 seconds or so, can you just leave, uh, you know, the, 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 the listeners with a final, some final words of wisdom.
2: You know, if investors and or their CPAs and attorneys would perform the due diligence required before investing, before handing money over to a potential fraudster, um, that would make such a difference in terms of the amount of money lost to the billions that are lost by tens of thousands of people every year. You got to do the work you got to put the work in whether you do it yourself or whether you hire somebody you got to do the work because it is preventable.
1: Yeah. So powerful. Again, James, thank you so much for taking the time out of your schedule to be with us here today. We greatly appreciate you and your transparency and everything that you're doing to make a difference and helping to, you know, bring down these cases of fraud uh in the investment world. Listeners, we want to thank you each and every week joining us here at the Sustainable Success Way. This show would not be where it's at because of you. We are committed to your success. And again, we will continue to bring in subject matter experts and guests like James that sharing their words of wisdom and insight to help move you along in your journey with success and your business. Again, if you have any questions or any comments, please re- reach out to James directly, or you could send us a message. We'll make sure that we get him that information. And any questions that you have re- regarding uh, future content here on the show, feel free to reach out to us at Chris. At ChristopherSalem.com. Till then, everybody, have a great rest of your day. We'll see you next Thursday.
0: Thank you for tuning in to Sustainable Success. Be sure to join Chris Salem and his guests every Thursday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time and 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Influencers Channel. Have an incredible week.